Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Donald Mazzella, and I am Editorial Director of Small Business Digest. Each hour here at Small Business Digest Radio, we hope to bring you information, strategies, and suggestions to help small business, business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. We have an exciting program this week covering uh, such topics as uh, uh, healthcare exchanges, do-it marketing, uh, uh, vision solutions, we'll discuss how to fight back a natural disaster, and we have some economic forecasts. So without further ado, uh, we welcome on board Joseph Berardo, who is CEO of MagnaCare. Joe, are you on the phone? I am. Thanks, Donald. Thanks for that introduction. Well, thank you for coming. First, uh, Joe, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I am uh, based out of New York. Uh, I run a business uh, called MagnaCare, which is headquartered here in New York City, and we serve uh, employers in the, in the health insurance industry uh, statewide, New York and New Jersey. Oh, okay. How do you help them? Well, basically, you know, Donald, what McIntyre has specialized in since 1990 is, is basically offering employers uh, self-insured solutions uh, for their health plan needs. So we're a regional player that competes with the, the household names that you're familiar with, such as Tonight, because we, because we want to talk about healthcare uh, exchanges, I saw a note that there's 95 days down till um, January 1, and uh, Obamacare or ACA or what other terms you want to use, uh, and health healthcare ex- exchanges are going to play a role. Uh, first, do you want to explain to the audiences? Uh, in a simplified form, the healthcare ch- exchanges, and we can go on uh, from there. I will give it my best, Donald, because that's uh, there's a couple of things that that aren't uh, really evident in this law. Is it's it's got a funny name because I don't think there's anything affordable about the Affordable Care Care Act, and uh, and quite frankly, there's, there's really nothing simple. But you know, let me try to distill it down for for the audience, uh, especially the small business community, because I think there's a few things. Like this health, there's a few things that they need to be careful of, and it really is going to depend on on where, in fact, you're running your business. So um, what I mean by that is about half of the states in the nation are actually going to operate a state-run exchange, meaning that the state Department of Insurance and other governing bodies have taken the responsibility for the creation of these electronic marketplaces where small businesses and individuals um, will be able to go to buy insurance. And then the remainder of the states um, are, are being run by the federal government. So they're kind of uh, in partnership with the states, but they're pretty much going to be administered by the federal government. I heard uh, from uh, an administrative official uh, not too long ago down in D.C. that the, the hope for a world-class experience is now uh, being replaced by, hopefully this is in a third-world experience, um, as people go on to these, these platforms to, to, to buy insurance. So the way it will work is, is in, uh, there's going to be in the federal exchanges a, a small business exchange which will allow for employers up to 50 employees uh, to be able to purchase and compare health plans uh, on the exchange. Um, some of the benefits to that to a small employer um, is basically if they purchase insurance and let's say they have 25 employees or less and they have two consecutive years of purchasing insurance on the exchange, so you know you get out to 2015, um, they will actually be eligible if they're a for-profit business um, and their average employee makes under $50,000. They actually will be available. They will have a tax credit available to them um, of 25% of the cost of the insurance. Um, now, you know, you got obviously you're putting out the money for a couple of years uh, before you get any benefit of, of some type of government uh, reimbursement. And really what it's going to come down to is, is how affordable are the products that end up being offered on the exchange. Um, and and if, if, if I can keep going on, the other uh, 
aspect of this is the individual exchanges. So, you know, quite well, frankly, before we, we, before we go there, let's stop mm-hmm. a minute with the small business. Sure. Uh, no one has, has yet has found out how much these these uh, in, in, uh, policies that will be available to small businesses will cost, and whether they can actually get them uh, cheaper uh, from from a private insurer. Yeah, well, that's that's a big deal, um, and you know what's interesting about it is is it is the unknown at this point. I mean, you know, I've I've also heard people joke that they think that the NSA might be running the exchanges because everything's so secretive. Um, but I think what what's going on right now is is they, you are seeing some rate approvals come out. Um, basically, the, the the plans that file for products within their given states are starting to get rate approval and rate feedback from the, the individual states' departments of insurance. And, the, you know, the challenging thing here, for the most part, is is really what what's going to be covered. So you, you have these three metals. You have the bronze, um, silver, and platinum, or bronze, silver, and gold um, levels of benefits, all of which have pretty significant member cost share. And then you have premium rates that are going to be filed with the individual states and then approved by the governing body. From what we've seen, at least in in some whispering around the state of New York, is that there are a couple of of new entrants to the marketplace um, that do have plans that could be as as low as, you know, 10 or 15% below the current offerings. Um, But they are structured. The new entrants, for the most part, are structuring their programs as kind of in-network-only programs. Um, So, you know, if if an employer has historically enjoyed, you know, the freedom of choice of of going to any provider or going to a large uh, network of providers and then maybe having some some coverage out of the network, um, a lot of the new entrants are approaching it to hit the price points by by not providing any out-of-network coverage. Um, So my personal opinion is 2014 or starting in October 2013, I don't think there's going to be a lot of choice. I don't think there's going to be a lot of, of, of necessarily fully affordable coverage, and it's going to be a little messy from an operational experience. Well, um, I, I heard from someone t- uh, today from from Washington that they're they're fairly confident that they'll meet the October one deadline f- for having the exchanges available. Though some people are uh, betting against it. But uh, uh, they have from Oct- uh, small businesses have from October 1st through December th- uh, 31st to make decisions. What should be their decision criteria? Well, you know, I, I think what they really need to do is is, 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 first of all, you know, small business has a big definition. So is it a small business of three people? Is it a small business of 45 people? Is it a small business of 60 people? Um, and, and all of that matters because there's going to be different requirements <laughs> And compliance issues for for employers. So, you know, if you're a small business defined as more than 50 employees, you will have the requirement of offering insurance, affordable insurance that covers the, the minimum benefits um, available. And if you don't, you're going to be subject to a, a fine of $2,000 per employee, starting at employee 31. You know, through the number of employees that you have. So clearly, there's some compliance things. If you're less than 50 employees, you really have no requirement to offer insurance. Um, and quite frankly, I think some of the risks we have, although I don't know that people are going to rush to do this, but I do believe we're going to have some employers that have less than 50 employees that are going to say, you know what, I'm going to get out of the benefits business and I'm going to look to the exchanges to cover my, my individual employees. And, you know, perhaps there's there's uh, raises involved or whatever, whatever just to kind of help offset it. But, um, you know, the complexity of compliance and the unknown of compliance going into October, I think is going to have a lot of employers, you know, kind of either sit on the sidelines if they've never offered insurance before or, you know, kind of continue with the status quo until such time there's clarity on on what compliance truly means. Well, what does your company do? I'm a small business. I have, say, 49 employees. What does your company do? Well, in in, uh, in the state of New Jersey where we operate, we could actually self-insure. We can we can create a program for you as long as you have 15 or more employees that are covered um, under the plan, and we basically use the self-insurance mechanism behind the scenes to create a plan that's typically, you know, it's not subject to the uh, the Obamacare uh, tax. 
it's not subject to uh, anything significant as it relates to premium tax, and it's governed by ERISA, which allows for some flexibility as it relates to the type of benefits that are offered. In the state of New York, it's a little different because they require... Before you go further, can I just interrupt you? Sure. Uh, That's something people... You mentioned the tax. That's something that many small businesses in our studies don't realize. There's a tax involved. Isn't there an insurance now which has to be passed on to the uh, uh, purchaser? Yeah, so in addition to the state insurance taxes, um, there's also uh, basically an Affordable Care Act tax that will be um, basically applied towards the insurance carriers, and it's based on uh, their actual net premiums, and it's kind of calculated across the board um, based on their size. And, you know, all indications and and all the feedback I've gotten from colleagues in the business is that will be passed along, you know, in in the form of uh, increased premiums to the members. Um, In in addition, a small employer um, also uh, above, above 25 employees will be subject to a nine-tenths of a percent increase in Medicare taxes um, as part of the program. Um, and then I think, you know, just as a small business owner, if uh, if they go and sell their business, you know, from a capital gains perspective, I think everyone's aware now that there's a 3.9% um, capital gains surcharge that's that, that's been put in place on top of the capital gains rates in order to help fund uh, this program. Uh, okay, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that was one of the key things that we found that people do not realize there's a tax involved. Now, yeah, you were going back and saying in New York State. Yeah, was, so in New York State, this, this is kind of governed at, at a state-specific level, and, and, and actually the Wall Street Journal uh, did an article a couple of weeks ago about whole, how all the large insurers are beginning to offer self-insured programs uh, you know, down to the small business levels of 10, 15, 25 employees. Um, and in many ways, this is just to allow for employers to have some choice and, and some flexibility, you know, as it relates to the type of program they want to put in place, uh, you know, for their employees. Um, you know, one strategy I have seen also, uh, Donald, is, you know, for employers that have not historically offered insurance, and that are going to be subject to the penalties, so they're above 50 employees. We see a lot of them now looking for insurance coverage, you know, effective October, November, December of this year, because what it will allow them to do is they will not have to change their strategy or or deal with certain compliance issues until the renewal of their plan, which would be then late in 2014. So they can lock down, you know, a rate now, they can, you know, basically off cover, offer coverage, see what some of the regulatory and compliance things really shake out to be, and then make a decision for their long-term strategy later in 2014 once this thing is, is live and fully implemented and, and, you know, there's some understanding around it. And, you know, that's um, – you, you, you put in uh, a, a lot of good information there, particularly in that last thing. We, we've seen that as well. People are expecting a surge. Uh, 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 towards the end of the uh, year. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, if someone were interested, you, you say only New York and New Jersey, but if they were interested in reaching you, how can they do it? Uh, well, let me give them two things. They can reach me in my office at 212-867-3606 um, or email anytime at J, the letter J Berardo, my last name, B-E-R-A-R-D-O, at magnacare.com. Oh, okay. One one last piece of advice you would give uh, small businesses looking at the, uh, the ACA Act, or as I call it, Obamacare. Uh, well, I, I like the last point I made too, Donald. I think that the the way to kind of manage this is if you're currently renewing uh, or currently offering insurance, you know, perhaps you make some changes. And, uh, and look at the compliance aspect of your plan, make sure it's affordable, and perhaps renew it at the end of this year. If you're not offering coverage and you're going to have to offer coverage in the future, I would suggest that they buy it at the end of this year. Um, and then also, you know, a lot of this is just going to come down to math and your given state. You know, some of the states might have very robust exchanges that do offer choices to employees. And if you're under 50 employees, you know, your strategy might be to enhance the compensation to your employees 
and then set them loose on the exchange where they might be eligible to get some subsidies. Um, but it, it really, it's, it's almost an individual decision based on the size of the business and the geography, geography for which the business exists. Well, thank you. Uh, uh, Joe, a little later in the year, I hope you'll come back and when, when these things get a little bit more clarified and talk with us. It would be my pleasure, Donald. Thank you very much. Okay. Our, our next, thank you. Our next desk, de de right. Our next guest is David Newman, who's written a book, Do It Marketing, and we're going to talk about that right now. Dave, are you on? I am. Great to be here, Don. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming on. Uh, first off, Dave, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I uh, work with folks who want to start a business or grow their business, mostly in the areas of professional services, so small and solo business owners, entrepreneurs, professional service providers. Uh, I do some speaking at conferences and uh, association events. I do an awful lot of one-on-one -on -one consulting. I do um, a lot of things online, so blogging and videos and ton of free resources on my website, which is doitmarketing.com. But tell me, um, how did you come to be able to do all this? Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Well, I started, uh, my corporate career was inside uh, small and large consulting firms, so management consulting, technology consulting, um, and I went out on my own in 2001. And, Don, I think you'll appreciate this because like so many entrepreneurs uh, and small business owners, I went out there on my own and I made every mistake in the book. And I made the good ones twice because they were so much fun. Uh, overspending, underspending, not being focused, not having a niche, not having a target market, not having a clear message. So I was just literally kind of banging around trying to figure out how to do this kind of consulting and uh, training and speaking that I had done on the inside as a uh, consultant for hire for big companies and how to do that on my own in the entrepreneurial vein. And I finally figured out after about two or three years of doing everything wrong and making all the mistakes and making the good ones twice, like I said, I finally figured out, gosh, this is really all about focus. It's all about focus. It's all about clarity. It's all about consistency. You know, there's the joke that I think many entrepreneurs will resonate with that to be successful, you have to be like a postage stamp, meaning you have to stick you have to stick with something until you get there. And, you know, it was shiny object syndrome and uh, distractions that were disguised as opportunities and, you know, you name it. So starting around 2004, when I finally got my head screwed on straight and I decided to focus 100% on marketing and sales and business development for small business owners and entrepreneurs, that's when things started to take off. Okay, now tell us how you came to write your book, which I found uh, interesting. That's why you're on the program. Well, so the book is really a collection of um, strategies, tips, tools, tactics, templates, you know, everything that's in my personal toolkit. So when I speak to a group, when I uh, coach and consult individually with a small company or with an individual entrepreneur, there's a whole, there's a whole um, array of tools and templates and scripts and processes and systems that we go through. So rather than have to recreate the wheel and, and just have to figure this out piecemeal, I said, let me put this book together that really is the compilation of everything that I believe in, everything that I teach, and everything that I've seen work hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times for all of the small business owners and entrepreneurs and independent professionals that I've worked with. So in essence, and here's the other thing, Don, I, I, that's the external reason that I wrote the book. The internal reason is I wrote this book because I wish I had this book when I was starting out. 
We always, um, uh, being an entrepreneur myself, I agree with you. I've uh, probably made all the mistakes. But now let's talk about um, what are you? What are the three biggest mistakes most people make? Well, or I think the three. Common, I think the most common would be a better way of putting it. Sure, sure. Well, I think the number one most common mistake that I see all the time are business owners and entrepreneurs that are great at doing the business of the business, but they're not great at the marketing and the sales and the business development. And Michael Gerber talked about this, and, you know, all the gurus talk about this, that, you know, that's the, what the e-myth is based on, that small business owners typically are great technicians, and they're not great business people. So I think, you know, the first mistake is to not to think of yourself as the chief marketer and the chief salesperson. The second big mistake is to think that marketing and sales and business development activities have to be hard or have to be challenging. One of the things I talk about in the book, in the Do It Marketing book, is that your marketing needs to be easy, effortless, and enjoyable. And I call that triple E. And if the marketing tasks that you assign yourself are not easy, effortless, and enjoyable, you're not going to do them. Because at the end of the day, you know, we have to get up and market our business every single day. Rain or shine, happy or sad, feel like it or not. And if we don't select things that come easily and naturally and effortlessly that tap into our strengths as, as entrepreneurs, it's not going to work. So people say, well, you know, do I have to write? Do I have to write articles? Do I have to blog? Do I have to do a whole lot of writing? I said, well, no. If you hate writing, you should not use writing strategies in your marketing. They say, well, should I go out and network? Should I go out to all these networking meetings? And should I, should I go out and uh, shake hands and kiss babies? I said, well, do you love networking? Do you enjoy being with people? Do you enjoy making new friends and new connections? No, boy, I hate that. Well, if you hate it, then you shouldn't be doing those strategies. Other people say, well, I love technology. You know, I love the computer. I love making audios. I love making videos. But, you know, I don't think that's going to work to market my business. And I say, well, why not? And they say, well, because, you know, it's too much fun. I find that stuff easy. I mean, that, that can't be marketing. And it always makes me laugh because, you know, people want, it's almost like in, in our DNA, people want marketing to be hard because if it's hard, then it's noble. Or, and they want selling to be hard. Because if it's hard, then it's noble and it's worthy and it's worthwhile. I'm saying let's flip that. Let's focus on just doing the marketing and sales activities that you find easy, effortless, enjoyable. The third mistake that really relates to the first two is trying to do everything. So every strategy is a good strategy. Every tactic is a good tactic. We should do trade shows. We should do advertising. We should do PR and publicity. We should do telemarketing and using the phone. We should do uh, uh, blogging and Internet marketing. We should be on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Pinterest. No, you, know, you can't do it all. Uh, you know, and so how many small business owners and entrepreneurs just get exhausted because they've assigned themselves falsely about 600 different marketing jobs. And the last thing they need, in addition to serving their clients, developing business, uh, you know, working on the important things, the things that matter most, how many of them really need a whole bunch of extra marketing jobs? They don't. So most people, most entrepreneurs, most business owners, will get better results if they do less marketing and not more. That, that, that's a terrific, but it's a perfect point for us to, to stop for one minute while we hear a word from our sponsors. <coughs> Want to know more about health savings accounts for your company or yourself? Go to 2hsa.com and get a free employer's primer. Health savings accounts are a cost-effective way of offering health care benefits to your employees and yourself. HSAs build retirement funds for your employees, improve morale, and reduce your health care benefit costs. For a free employer guide to HSAs, go to 2hsa.com. That's 2hsa.com. 
We're, we're back live here. I'm Don Mazzella. We're here with David Newman, uh, who's written, a, to me, a fascinating book, Do It Marketing. Uh, he just gone through what are the common mistakes people start up with. What are the, what are the things that you see that people do right uh, in, in, the, in uh, starting up or developing a business? Well, I think the entrepreneurs that are super focused are are doing a lot of things right. Um, you know, so so what are some indicators that you're doing things right and that you're super focused? If you say no, if you say no to more things than you say yes to, if you decide on a very specific target market that has a very specific set of heartaches, headaches, pains, problems, and solutions that your product or your service or your program is brilliant at solving. If you are intimately, uh, intimately familiar and always researching more about your target market, about your, your individual buyers, about the language that they use, about you know, living in their world, researching, looking at industry blogs, going to industry uh, conferences and trade shows, pressing the flesh, interviewing. I mean, that's one of the things, Don, that obviously you're doing is you are, you are making connections, you are interviewing folks, you are, you've got your finger on the pulse of the small business community. So the entrepreneurs that are doing things right, they have their finger on the pulse of the people that they serve. And again, not the companies and not, you know, not the kind of big picture industry landscape because, you know, that's that's easy. I'm talking about the individual buyers, the individual executives, the senior executives, the C-level people, the flesh and blood human beings that you need to connect with on an emotional level to have a marketing and sales value-first conversation, studying them and their circumstances, their urgencies, their priorities. One of the things I talk about in the Do It Marketing book is you know, selling effectively is so much more about questions than it is about answers. So if you sit down with someone, and everyone, all of our buyers are lazy, busy, and befuddled. I have got I've got that in the book as well. <laughs> that truly, we're all. I mean, and even us as buyers, you know, I know that when I'm in a buying mode, I'm lazy, busy, and befuddled. I've got the attention span of a flea. I need to be hit, you know, hit squarely between the eyes in the first two seconds, saying, "Okay, I'm in the right place. This is the right product. This is the right service. This can solve my problem. This will fit my needs." So, if we're going to market to folks who are lazy, busy, and befuddled, it needs to be crystal clear. It needs to be crystal clear what you do, why it's important, and how it fits into their world. And another thing that's really important that I see some, some, some entrepreneurs, not all, uh, do right is that they speak plain English. So their marketing language on their website, their marketing language in their brochures or postcards or direct mail piece or whatever it is that they use to market their business, it speaks prospect language about prospect problems. It doesn't talk in marketing speak. It doesn't talk in jargon. It's a prospect-centered message. It is not a product or service or you-centered message, meaning you, you know, supplier-centered. It is audience-centered. It's prospect-centered, and it, it talks in plain English. It talks in their language about their problems. So that's a handful of things that people do right. Again, easier said than done, but I think some of the templates and exercises and tools in the Do It Marketing book will help you get there much, much quicker. That's a perfect segue. Now, how can people get your book, and how can people uh, talk to you? Well, they can get the book uh, on Amazon.com. They can get the book uh, anywhere books are sold. It's in the Barnes & Noble stores right now. Uh, it's online. Uh, they can also go to my website, which is doitmarketing.com forward slash book, and there's all kinds of book bonuses and electronic downloads, companion pieces to the book, and all of those are free. Uh, and then they can also get in touch with me at that same website, www.doitmarketing.com. Uh, there's a blog. There's all kinds of free resources. And if I can be helpful to the folks listening, um, would love to connect with you. 
Well, thank you. And uh, uh, hopefully you'll come back soon and we'll talk some more. Really We'd love to come back, Tom. Thank you. Our next guest is uh, Becky Gelming, Senior Mark Manager of Product Strategy for Vision Solutions, who will dis discuss how to fight back from a natural or man-made disaster. Um, we also have waiting in the wings Dr. Kenneth E. Lair, who will be on right after Becky and uh, to discuss the economic uh, uh, situation and how it affects small business. But first, uh, Becky Gelming, I hope I pronounced it correctly. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Donald. It's a pleasure to be here. Nice to meet you. Well, first off, Becky, tell us a little bit about you and your background. Uh, my background is entirely in um, IT, back office software. I've been doing that for my entire career. I started out with PC local area networking back when that was new and then worked in uh, backup software, systems management software, including software distribution and asset inventory, and I'm now back in the backup high availability and disaster recovery space. I started as a developer but have kind of... Uh, moved over the course of time into marketing and now into product strategy. So I'm currently responsible for all of Vision's uh, product strategy for our IBM Power System solutions. Well, um, I read in the New York Times uh, the other night that the climatologists are now saying the reduction in um, uh, dirty air uh, is causing us to have more natural disasters uh, generated, like hurricanes. Uh, the cleaner the air, the more hurricanes we're getting. And um, there was also another st statistic that each 90 seconds in America, a small business has a fire, flood, or other catastrophe. So let's talk about that, because that can be a catastrophe. That can be a catastrophe, yeah. Um, we certainly do see that trend towards a rising number of disasters, and they seem to have a larger impact. You know, I believe that, and certainly survey data and analyst reports will bear that up, that SMBs are more vulnerable to the impact of downtime and data loss. The business climate has changed, regardless of whether you're a small business or a large enterprise. There's this expectation of around-the-clock service and, you know, global access, you know, 24 by 7, and it doesn't matter if you're an SMB or an enterprise, that's the expectation regardless of your budget or your staff size. So if an SMB experiences, you know, downtime because of a natural disaster event, it can be catastrophic. They may have all of their mission-critical data and servers centralized in that one location that's really common for a small or medium business is to have everything on one server or just a couple of servers in one location, so it's a single point of failure that really impacts them. Um, they're subject to the exact same uh, requirements and regulations that an enterprise might be subject to, you know, HIPAA or Sarbanes-Oxley. So if they go down, they're going to take a financial impact if they can't get back up quickly. So all in all, we just see that the uh, impact of the system downtime and the associated costs has a, a larger a larger impact given their cash flow that they have available and uh, statistically you know as you pointed out the US small business association even published a number that said 25 to 40% of small businesses that experience a significant downtime event will never reopen so it's it's a major thing for for SMBs to to think about oh yes um, I, i've seen the figures and that's why when uh, uh, your name came across my desk i um I was gl glad to invite you. Now, can you tell us what Vision does? Yeah, Vision is a provider of information availability software. So it's our mission to reduce the amount of downtime that organizations experience. We have solutions that provide disaster recovery and high availability for all sorts of common business platforms, Windows, Linux, IBM AIX and IBM I, whether that's on a physical server or a virtual server or in the cloud. That's our mission to, to protect that data on those servers, make sure that it's accessible to um, companies and that they experience little downtime in the event of a failure. Uh, I'm a small business. I have some of my applications in the cloud. I have some on my desktop, and I have someone some out somewhere on a, a remote uh, computer. 
Mm-hmm. Are you saying you can integrate those so that they remain uh, operational? We can help protect the servers that have your applications, whether they're in the cloud or at your location or off-site, um, whether it's Windows, Linux, AIX, or IBM I. We protect the applications and the data and the server state information so that if any one of those systems should go down, it can be quickly brought back up so you have a minimal interruption in your in your business. And we offer a number of tips in order to help companies figure out you know, what is the right approach for me, the, the, what things do I need to think about to put together my disaster recovery plan. <laughs> well, I've seen in a survey that, that we did last year that less than uh, 26% of of our respondents said they had a backup system. Is that what you're finding? You know, I find that most companies have a tape backup system. It seems to be very common. Our surveys actually say that it's more like 80 or 85%. That's what we see from our survey data and other industry data, um, that you know, people have that tape system. It's you know It came with the box, and they know how to put those tapes in, and they might stick them in the filing cabinet at the end of the day, which is a very dangerous thing to do because that tape is right there by your server, or take it home with them a couple blocks away from the office, which doesn't do much to protect in the event of a disaster. But you know people do use those tapes. It's just that it's not a particularly strong solution for a disaster because if you're only doing your tape backup once a day, as soon as that backup is done, then you have a 24-hour period of time in which new data is being generated but it's not going to be protected until that next tape backup. So you have a big window there where you're vulnerable to data loss. So we see a lot of people using that strategy that maybe have not realized that that strategy of yesterday isn't meeting their needs today in terms of data loss and time to get their business back up and running. Well, uh, how can people reach you and your company? They can reach us on the web at www.visionsolutions.com. Um, there's a, all of our contact information is is right there, toll-free numbers, and they can call right in and uh, they can ask me if they'd like to speak with me personally. Uh, uh, to sum up, what would you uh, what would be the three things you would say to a small business owner who's uh, right now not uh, backing up his system or her system? I would I would say to um, form a small task force. It could be one person, just a couple people, to think really hard about what your most important data and applications are. What do you need to protect and what do you need to get back up most quickly in the event that your business goes down? Think hard about how long you can afford to be down and how much data you can afford to lose. We're finding that people are realizing, I can't really afford to lose anything, let alone five minutes or an hour or a day. So, you know, really kind of define those parameters. And then second, figure out how to get your protection strategy outside of your building. That's putting putting your tapes on the building or even a couple blocks away at home is just not enough. So think about where your data is going to be most safe. Can you get it to a partner's site and put a backup system at the partner's site and let him put one at your site so that you're geographically distant from where you're backing up your data? Or does it make sense for you to back it up to a cloud or to a service provider? So think about, think creatively about how you can get your data off the system. And then thirdly, I would say think beyond that tape strategy that so many people are using today because it is leaving that huge gap in protection between backup and because it takes a very long time to restore from a tape strategy. So looking at a real-time replication solution that protects all data in real time and affords you zero data loss is something that, that people should really think about and weigh that against the cost of going down, which can be catastrophic. Becky, thank you for joining us, and we hope that you're with us again. Now a word from our sponsor, and we'll be hearing from Dr. Kenneth Blair in just 30 seconds. Many small businesses purchase supplies, equipment, other needs through local stores. To save money on many of these purchases, consider Deem.com. This purchasing site offers real bargains and large discounts on many key items needed to run your business and it's free to join and use. That's D-E-E-M dot com. 
Again, DEEM.com for all your small business needs. Mazzella, this is Don Mazzella. I'm, uh, I'm the editorial director of Small Business Digest. It's my pleasure to uh, uh, invite onto the program now uh, a longtime friend, uh, but more importantly, probably one of the most prescient economists I know, who, who over the years has uh, provided pro, uh, articles for us and been amazingly prescient about the economic uh, situation. Kenny, are you on the line? Kenny, are you on the line? Yes. Ah, uh, our engineer over there. Uh, anyway, welcome to, to the program, Kenny. Uh, first off, uh, be, uh, as I ask every uh, uh, guest, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I was born and raised in New York City. I went to New York University with Don Mazzella. And from NYU, I received four degrees, a Bachelor of Science degree in finance, a Master's of Business Administration degree in banking, a Master of Arts in economics, and a doctorate in economics. And after completing my education, I relocated to Houston, where I've been an active practicing economist since 1982 in business for myself. I value businesses. I issue fairness opinions, I do due diligence analysis, feasibility studies, and litigation support where I testify for attorneys in complicated real estate, banking, and finance litigation lawsuits. Uh, and uh, uh, over the years, Kenny has usually been a devastating uh, witness. Uh, Kenny, the economy today, our audience is small business leaders who are concerned. Um, we did a recent study that uh, indicated that uh, many companies have uh, burned up the reserves and are now starting to cut into their bone. Is there any hope for the future? Well, the first thing I would advise that one way or another, including overtime or not going on a vacation, is to build up some reserves because it's going to be a rocky ride going forward. It's not hopeless. It's just going to be rocky, especially as we approach the 2016 election and the whole nation more or less shuts down for the next presidential election, which will be very expensive, very timely, and very upsetting to the business environment. And what I mean by timely is the people are going to start in 2014 and a half or 2015, by the latest, getting ready for the election, which could hurt the overall economy and making the ride going forward really bumpy. Well, that's a somewhat gloomy picture, but for small business um, uh, leaders, what should they be doing to uh, uh, improve their uh, reserves or uh, should they be hunkering down, uh, or should they be expanding? What should they be doing, Kenny? Staying lean and mean. There are lots of things you can do to improve your cash flow just by doing small things, including the way you use postage, the way you use overnight delivery services, the way you pay overtime to people. You can come in on Saturdays and or Sundays and work by yourself and get items done instead of paying people to do it. In my little business, I've found a variety of ways to save $10 here, $10 there, and I'm just a small economist. A larger small business, let's say six, seven, eight, ten people, should be able to save a lot more with thinking rather rather than uh, expensing an extra $100 here or there, thinking it doesn't matter. I, w I would try to rebuild liquidity at all costs. Well, you know, that's interesting. You mentioned that. Um, 
the large corporations seem to be sitting on a, a lot of cash and a much flattened organizations. Well, uh, with that being the case, how does that affect smaller businesses uh, in terms of competition, in terms of there's a report that there are more new businesses started this year than at, at any other time in the last 20 years? Small businesses, including my own, tend to feed larger businesses. When a large law firm needs an economic study and they want to watch their nickels and they're very price conscious, they come to me. Now, if larger organizations are going to hoard their cash and not spend it, not invest it, they want to keep it for a rainy day, that's going to affect small businesses in their ability to supply larger businesses. I mean, yesterday, Wild Gottschalk and Mangies, a large law firm in New York City, located in the General Motors building, laid off approximately 150 people. That's a lot for law firm. And if law firms are going to start watching their pennies, small businesses that supply law firms are going to get hurt because they're going to watch the flow to the small businessman, and the small businessman will be crimped in profit in supplying the larger person. Well, uh, you know, you know, every day we read the depressing fact: 180 here, 40 there, 50 there. We never read about the uh, small business uh, owner who lays off one of five. But uh, uh, do you see that happening uh, around the country in your studies? No, I see the small business person just suffering the cutbacks. They don't buy a new car. They don't go out as much on Saturday night. In Houston here, on Saturday night at 1030, you would think the whole city has has abandoned the city. It's very quiet. And I attribute that to small business people saying we don't need to spend an extra $100 on liquor and dessert at 1030 on a Saturday night. Those are the people that are trying to conserve their their cash and their assets. And they're not laying off people like the larger businesses. They're conserving and using all kinds of tricks and maneuvers to cut back on expenses that are not necessary. I mean just look at the number of Christmas parties that were that were cut last year. I mean they used to have all kinds of Christmas parties I used to get invited to. It's not me. I ask around. There are fewer and fewer Christmas parties every year. Well, you know, that's interesting. Um, you bring up Christmas parties, but um, uh, I just saw a, a Wall Street Journal story that the middle class is really the one that has not really benefited from, uh, from any turnaround and that their consumer buying habits are still... Uh, of concern, um, uh, and uh, I just came from a briefing for holiday uh, buying uh, today, and they indicated that they expected it to be at best a one percent increase over uh, 2012. Do you think that's the case? Yes, because many required expenditures of the middle class, things that you really can't do without gasoline, food, entertainment for children, education for children, medical deductibles. These things are slowly crept up and and eroded the disposable income of the middle class. I mean, and I'm not talking about a cup of coffee at Starbucks. I'm talking about a Snickers bar, which is now a buck and a quarter. That's a little expensive for a candy bar I used to buy for 20 cents. Uh, Cookies in the grocery store. When I was a kid, you bought a box of cookies for 79 cents. I am not spending $5 for a box of cookies. 
I think I can live without the cookies and enjoy the five dollars. And I think the middle class has to realize that there's not going to be any more gifts to them like there were during certain inflationary periods, and they're going to have to cut back and stop buying $5 cookies and a $160 pair of sneakers and other items that they can really live without that would benefit them in the longer longer term. Uh, Kenny, they say uh, new home housing starts are up. Um, why do you think that's the case? Okay, that's because for several years there were no new housing starts. So if you're coming off a very low base, it doesn't take a lot of growth or or a lot of demand to push a number higher. Uh, for two or three years with foreclosures and banks not making mortgages and, and the stock market being even or, or down, there was not a lot of housing demand in the United States. Now things have started to turn around a little bit, but a little bit of turnaround has promoted a large amount of growth in the housing industry. Um, the bond market has gone crazy over the last three days, um, uh, supposedly because of uh, uh, the end of easy, uh, easy or low uh, Fed uh, interest rates. How do you think that will affect small businesses? I don't think that's going to affect small business because most small businesses don't have a stash or depository of bonds. That's going to hurt older people who might have bought bonds. Now, price of those bonds is going to fall as interest rates increase, and when some older people realize that their net worth is declining in the, in their sunshine years, they might cut back further on their expenditures. So I think that, that the the hurt from rising interest rates will be on the lower level of the upper class that have bonds in their portfolio that will soon realize that the value of those portfolios is declining. However, they should have realized that two or three years ago, as you couldn't continue to print $85 billion a month forever. That's what well, we are basically doing. That's a, what's your line? How many, how many uh, dead every second or every minute? Uh, you, you mentioned it one time. Uh, how, how much dead are we adding each minute? Oh, we had uh, $50,000 a second. It takes a second to say $50,000. And by the time you finish saying $50,000, the government has spent $50,000 more than it took in. Um, on our program last week, uh, uh, we had someone talk about the tsunami of the fact that many um, business owners, uh, $8 billion estimated, uh, are ready to retire and really have no no place to sell their comp their companies to. Um, what do you think about that? Should people continue retire? Uh, what's the outlook in, in your opinion? Okay. Well, there's a lot of people, including myself, that there's no place for me to sell my business. And what I think is going to evolve, and you can say you heard it here first, in about five or six years. When MBAs are having even a tougher time to find a job, many small businesses are going to make a deal with a young entrepreneurial MBA to say, come in and work for me at below market rates because I can't afford $80,000 for an MBA. Come here for 40000 work for five or six years, and then I'll give you the business. You give me $40,000 a year for five years. There's going to be a trade, a, some, a, a special new type of triangular trade where the MBA, the business owner, and the business itself 
are going to trade with each other in order to foster the transfer of many of these small businesses from a an Eisenhower elder person like me to a young 35-year-old MBA who can't find a job in corporate life, doesn't have three or $400,000 to buy a business, but has talent and is willing to trade to get us a job in order to own a business. You watch, that's going to be a growing triangular trade. You know, that's fascinating. I had never heard that before, uh, Kenny. Um, uh, I'm, I'm searching for another question because I you know might who's come gonna, up. You know who's going to fuel that triangular trade? The alumni of the major universities. People like us are going to call their alumni and say, hey, if you find a couple of kids who can't find a job and that are willing to take on the eventual responsibilities of owning a business, but are willing to work for four or five years to learn the business at a reduced rate, tell him to give me a call and send me his resume. And the schools with the strongest alumni ties, Notre Dame, Texas A&M, Duke, UCLA, schools with very good alumni ties, Auburn, Etc. They're going to foster this type of triangular trade in order to both bail out their senior alumnus and find jobs and places for their up-and-coming students. They might even take a 5% cut for their endowment. If somebody helped me from NYU find a young person to take over my business, I'd gladly send NYU 5% any day. I think that that's is, what's going to happen. That is fascinating. Any other? Uh, we have one minute left, Kenny. Anything else you'd like to say to this audience? <laughs> How can they reach you? That's a, that's one important question. If they, they want to go talk to the further. internet and look for Lera Financial and Economic Advisory Services. Lera L E H R E R Financial and Economic Advisory Services in Houston, Texas. And for the last minute, I would say two things. Stay liquid. There's nothing you really can't live without. If you need a new car or a new expensive suit or a new watch, you can wait a year or two. You'll, nothing's going to happen to you. That's the first thing. Stay liquid and, and don't over overconsume. And secondly, be flexible, just like people were flexible when the PC came out and all these new items were created. You're going to have to be flexible because I don't see any new items coming down the pike to help the small businessman. I see the small businessman adapting existing items for new uses. That's how I see the small businessman getting the edge again. Kenny, thank you for joining us tonight, and I hope you come back again, perhaps with a little happier forecast. But thank you for being as honest as you always are. My pleasure, Don. Enjoy the 4th of July. That was the Kenneth T. Lair, uh, an economist, a prescient man. Um, as you can hear, he's as optimistic uh, uh, as most small business. We're also at the end of the program, but I want to, uh, to, uh, to close the program with the Supreme Court's decision that makes it hard for uh, employees to sue for discrimination. The reason I uh, uh, bring it up is studies have shown smaller companies are more likely to settle discrimination suits brought by employees in large corporations. And generally, these settlements amounts are smaller in these cases than those settled by larger entities. However, the amounts are usually much more daunting as a percentage of total assets. 
The Supreme Court has thrown a line smaller enterprises by making it more difficult. On the other hand, striking down the federal sanctity of marriage law, it will mean it is more expensive to provide health care insurance by recognizing same-sex marriage and therefore, in the long run, adding this group to the number of participants in plans. But on a happier note, a recent study of smaller companies are more flexible and helping employees with serious illness remain productive. We live in changing times, and perhaps it's nice when we do things because it's the right thing and not the expedient course. I'm Don Mazzella, and this small business style is radio. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profits. We're here every week at Blog Radio slash Small Business Digest. If you like what you heard, tell others about it. If you'd like to be our guest or suggest topics for a few hours, email me at dmazella at is.incorp.com. We also remind the listeners that besides our radio office, we also produce a magazine and newsletter, smallbusinessdiasmag.com to sbdigest.com. Thank you and good night.